Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we, we understand that Jesus is Lord of all. Father, please be with our pastor this morning as he brings the message and understand that we not only need to hear the message, Father, but we need to apply it to our lives and take this out into the world, Father, and, and just be salt and light to everyone we come in contact with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. All right, church. Well, you ready to dive into God's Word? Matthew chapter 5 is where Brother Stephen had us turn. And uh, the title of this message is, Who's Your Authority? Who's Your Authority? Don't we love the idea of authority? Children love having authority over them. Teenagers love having authority over them. Spouses love having authority over them. Employees love having authority over them. Church members love having authority over them. Don't we love authority? When you're driving down the street and there's a sign that says 55 miles per hour, just encouraged by the authority that pulls up behind you with blue lights, and, um, and you just say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. For the authority that has helped to remind me of the safe driving speed limit. And, uh, and that's a good question. Who is your authority? As we're in this series called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it begins in Matthew chapter 5 and actually goes through Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in it for several weeks. And this is really the third part of it. And, um, and, and basically we've, we've said and we've tried to change our language right from some bad language to good language. And the bad language is we often say Jesus came and he turned the world upside down. But we said, no, no, that's not right. The world was upside down after Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree and, and sin entered the world and the world became cursed and uh, all of humanity, all of creation. In fact, the Bible says creation, the animals, the atmosphere, the oceans, the trees are groaning, waiting for God to redeem his creation. And so the world has been turned upside down. Jesus came to set the world right side up. And, and as followers of Jesus Christ, if you're in this room this morning, you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of his kingdom. He is a king, and a king has a kingdom, and you are a part of that. You are a kingdom citizen. And so what are the ethics what is the marching orders of those kingdom citizens? And so he's laying that out for us here in the longest sort of sermon, if you will. There's probably multiple sermons in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7. And so he's helping us identify how do we become agents who, with him, empowered by him, turn the world right side. Y'all help me. Up. There we go. Good. Okay. Right side up. And so... He starts with the Beatitudes, right? He says, this is your attitude. You want to be a person who is a kingdom citizen? When I come into a heart and change it, this is what happens. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize they need God desperately. Blessed are those who are mourn, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. 
These are the kingdom citizens. These are the people who have been impacted by me, who have a relationship with me. Then he goes on to say what we talked about last week. How will these people make an impact? They will make an impact, right, by being salt, preservative, preserving the decaying, rotting things that are going on around us and creating thirst, and there'll be light. Not beaming it in people's eyes, you know, causing blindness, but a light guiding people to the true light, right? And that's what we're called to be as kingdom citizens. And so now Jesus is helping us deal with the word authority. And um, and one of my authorities is here today. My dad is here today. So excited to have him. He's been an authority in my life for many years and in some levels still is an authority. Right. And um, and if you want to hear any stories, I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you afterwards and and, and would help you uh, be encouraged, especially if you're a parent and um, he can tell you some things. And so but I'm grateful for my dad. And so um, how does one get into heaven? How does one become a kingdom citizen? And, and how does Jesus feel and think about authority and more specifically about God's commands? How does Jesus feel about God's command? How does Jesus feel about the Bible? You see, you know, some people just kind of picture Jesus just stale and pasty on a picture, right? You know, we just seen stale, pasty pictures from a few hundred to maybe a thousand years ago, and he's like flat and that sort of stuff. And we just think, well, Jesus is far removed. And other people are like, no, man, Jesus was revolutionary. And, and uh, man, he, he's not about religion. He's about a relationship. And, and you don't have to worry. Jesus is about grace. You don't have to worry about all the commands and all that stuff. It's just grace, the grace of God. And, and man, don't worry about all that stuff in the Bible. Just let Jesus love you. And is that true? Or how does Jesus feel about the commands of God, about the scriptures? How does Jesus feel about the holiness and righteousness of God? Have you ever thought about that? See, there are some that would say Jesus uh, is totally kind of done with the Old Testament. That was like a different God. That was like grumpy God. And then Jesus came and that's like happy God. And it's like two different gods here. No, the Bible declares very clearly God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God. And, and so, in fact, there's one popular book out now that kind of actually discouraged me um, by uh, the pastor, Andy Stanley. If, if you know Charles Stanley, it's his son. And Andy Stanley has influenced my life in a lot of ways. I think he's a great preacher. And, um, but he came out with a book recently that really kind of saddened me because he basically said, we want to unhitch the Old Testament like a trailer. We want to unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity because we don't really need that. I was like, wow, really? Man, what's going on, Andy? And, and I understand his uh, desire because you know reading the Old Testament is difficult. But how did Jesus feel about the Old Testament? How did Jesus feel about the scriptures and the commands and the righteousness and the holiness of God? How did he feel about that? Well, I think we're going to find out here in a second. How does he feel about authority? He's going to tell us that. And who is our authority? And so let's get ready to dive in here. And so point number one, you can write this down, um, is this. Kingdom citizens, if you call yourself a kingdom citizen, number one, you will live your life under the authority of Scripture. Kingdom citizens live their lives under the authority of Scripture. Under the authority of Scripture, meaning I am underneath what the Bible has to say. Before I make a decision, I want to know what the Bible has to say. Graduates are thinking about 
college and future plans and jobs. And before I, I say yes to this job, before I want to know what God has to say about this. That's a kingdom citizen living their life under the authority of Scripture. Before I date somebody, before I buy a house or buy a car, before I do this, or that, I want to know, am I living under the authority of Scripture? Look at the first couple verses here, verses 17 through 19, as Jesus explains it to us. How does Jesus feel about the law, the Old Testament, about the commands and the righteousness of God? He says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come, I have not come, excuse me, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? fulfill them. That's an important word there. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them because Jesus, man, he was accused of being loose with God's commands. He was accused of being too soft and too filled with grace. And, and they said, who do you think you are? Notice how the statements, if you've got your Bible, right, if you're looking at it, Jesus starts with like third person general. He says, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, right? Then he moves to, you are, as a kingdom citizen, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But now he shifts. That was second person. Now he shifts to first person. And he begins to make all these I statements. I am, or I say to you. And the religious teachers are like, who do you think you are? You're not a rabbi. You can't come in here and tell us all how to do everything. You're, you're, who are you, Joseph's son, the son of a carpenter? You didn't train and study the Torah. If anything, you're probably the son of some illegitimate soldier. We know the story about your mom and Joseph. Who do you think you are? And Jesus would come and he would heal on the Sabbath and he would do all these things that seemed to fly in the face of, of what God's word said. And, and he would uh, hang out with the sinners and the prostitutes and with the, the worst of the worst and the least of the least. And these guys were like, man, you are so slack with God's law. You are so liberal. You're so this. Oh, my gosh. Jesus says, hold on. Let, let's know the truth about this. I did not come to abolish the law. Look at the word there. The law and the what? And the prophets. That, that's, that's how they would say in their vernacular, the Old Testament. The law, meaning the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets, meaning, uh, well, well, the rest of the prophets. They would also sometimes uh, put in songs and proverbs and all that sort of stuff, calling those the writings. But in short form, they mean the entire Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish God's demands for righteousness and holiness. I came to what? Fulfill them. Well, what does that mean? Well, obviously, he fulfilled all the prophecies that hundreds of prophecies said he would be born here. And, and he would um, you know, do this and do that. And, and hundreds of prophecies, he fulfilled those. But it also means that Jesus fulfilled all the commands ethically. Jesus, listen to me now, never sinned, not once. He fulfilled every command. Never once lusted, never once got angry and sinned, never once cut somebody a dirty look, never once waved at somebody with one finger. Uh, maybe he did, and it wasn't bad back in those days, but you know what I'm talking about. And um, never once said a crossword, was obedient to his parents. He fulfilled Every aspect of God's commands. And he's the only one did it perfectly, right? Because none of us have done it perfectly. Right? I mean, just think about your week for a second. 
Think about your thought life for a second. Think about the things you were thinking of. Think about the things you were doing, saying, and posting. Those all pleasing to God? No. And so he fulfilled them, never compromising, not once broken. And so how did he feel about Scripture? Let's look at what he says here in verse 18. So he's saying, I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. I came to complete it might be another good word, right? Kind of kind of um, like one completes or fulfills their homework, right? You don't abolish your homework. I know I said verse 18, but I'm, I'm, I'm staying on verse 17 for a second just so we make sure we got it, right? <clears throat> right? You don't abolish your homework by taking it and going and tossing it, right? You fulfill your homework by doing it. You complete it. And that's what Jesus is saying. I have completed all the righteous requirements of the law. Everything the Bible has commanded people to do, I have fulfilled it. And then now, let's see how he feels about Scripture because these guys still aren't feeling it. Verse 18, notice what he says. For truly, who says? I say. And they're like, where are you getting your authority from, man? Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all, how much? All is accomplished. Jesus, how did Jesus feel about the scriptures? Jesus believed in the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy of the Bible. What does that mean, Pastor? It means this book is perfect. Right? Are you staying with me? This book has no errors, and I know many people were trying to say there are errors in it, and 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 we don't understand everything in it. But I'm telling you, I've read it for a number of years, and I haven't found errors. I found plenty of things I didn't understand, and later on, God revealed those to me. I was like, oh man, I thought that was a problem, but God, you're a lot smarter than I am, and I I I, I approached the book with humility. But notice what Jesus says. Look 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 what he says with these words here. If you grew up in church, you probably are familiar with the words where he used to say, not a jot or a tittle, and those are kind of like, oh, okay. I don't know what those mean. Maybe some of you know what an iota or a dot means. But um, I got a couple pictures here um, because what is he talking about? He's talking about some Hebrew alphabet marks here. So here's Hebrew alphabet. Uh, this is, uh, it, it reads from right to left. I'm having trouble with my water here. Excuse me. <clears throat> This is the name for God as it's written in the Bible in, in Hebrew. So it starts on the right with that little, looks like an apostrophe. That's called the letter Yod. That's actually what's referring to here. And this, this would be right to left Yahweh uh, and vowels. It's lovely reading Hebrew because they don't put the vowels in. Uh, sometimes they put the vowels in, which are like little dots on the bottom or the top or in the middle. This is just, you have to know what it says. And that's a very fun language to learn. <clears throat> so, but it says Yahweh. That's the name for God, his personal name, I am that I am. But when it says not one iota, or if you grew up old school King James, not not one jot, okay, that would be a, a jot, which is the Hebrew letter yod. Reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell him yod. 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 We just greet one another around church like yod. <clears throat> So not one yo. This is the smallest letter. Are you staying with me? In Greek, they call it an iota, which is like, you know, we, we say that in our common language. Like, you don't have one iota of a chance. You know, uh, the Greek word letter is called iota, but 
the Hebrew letter which you're referring to was the smallest letter. It's just like an apostrophe. He's saying, stay with me now, in the scriptures, not one yod, not the smallest letter in the Bible is out of place. I have preserved my word. I have preserved the Bible so that not one yod is out of place. And then the next thing that he says is not, not, not one iota or not one dash, right? Or one dot. And, and, and so I know you're, you're just loving and enjoying this. Um, I should have brought a little laser thing up here with me. But these are two more Hebrew words here. Uh, this would be Vav, and this would be Zion. Don't they look pretty similar? They look very similar, right? And uh, there, there's just a little difference, this little little dash up there. It's just it's just the, the stroke with a, a pen, or if you grew up, uh, you know, knowing how to do calligraphy, it's just a little stroke there, not the leadest, least stroke, not the least dot. What is Jesus saying? He's saying in verse 18, right? Man, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away for all of time, not, not one yod, not one iota, not one the smallest letter in the entire alphabet, not one little dot, not one little cursive serif mark is going to pass away from the scriptures. I need y'all to know what Jesus is affirming for us is in this book is inerrant. It's infallible. It is our authority and we are to live our lives under it. The problem with people saying, well, I don't believe this part of the Bible, but I like this part, is that you you got to take it as a whole. Okay, many people are saying, well, I, you know, I, I want to get like, you know, an eraser and erase out certain verses. Well, you can't do that. If you believe the Bible tells you how to be saved and get to heaven, but you don't believe it's tells you how to run your life on a daily basis on a Monday or a Tuesday, it tells you how to interact in relationships and with your sexuality and with your uh, marriage and with your children and with your finances. You're really saying to Jesus, I trust you enough to get me to heaven, but I don't trust you enough with all this sort of stuff because I don't think you really know about this stuff. And it's an affront to God when his word is perfect. Amen. He's saying, I, I want you to know. So don't question. He's telling these Pharisees, don't question my commitment to the word of God. Don't question my commitment to the scripture or my obedience to its commands. I'm saying this is not going to pass away. And you as a believer, as a Christian, can have confidence that this is Jesus saying this. How does he feel about his own Bible? He's saying not one word is going to pass away. Not one little smallest letter is going to pass away. And especially for our college students, you know, these, these folks getting ready to graduate, there'll be all kinds of college professors will say, oh, this has changed in the Bible. How could a Bible over all these years, thousands of years, there not be errors? And I played the telephone game. My kids love to play the telephone game, right? And, and there's just a handful of us around the table, and, uh, and they want to do it with two of us one time. And I was like, how are we going to do the telephone game with just both of us? Like, this is not going to work out well. You know, but it's like somebody starts by saying, you know, um, Aunt Susie went to the mall. And then the next person goes, Aunt Booty went and grew up tall. And, and then it becomes Huey got them all. And then it becomes something else, right? You played the telephone game before. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody ever played the telephone game? Okay, some of y'all played it. If not, go home and, and, and just have fun with it today. I mean, don't do anything else on Sunday. I mean, at least play the telephone game. And people think, man, people, have five people around a dinner table can't get that right. There's no way people can get the word of God right, but God has made a promise to us, right? And when God makes a promise, it's true. And you can look through. In fact, when, when they go through all that, I'll just briefly, I wasn't going to go here all 
today. Um, but in the in the uh, mid 50s, when when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, everyone was like, "Oh, Dead Sea Scrolls that disproved the Bible." No, man, they found a copy of the Book of Isaiah, a thousand years. Listen to me now, a thousand years older than any of the original copies we had of Isaiah. Thousand years, folks. Not five minutes at a dinner table. Thousand years, and they compared the copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls they found in Qumran in the cave there, a little shepherd boy. Threw a rock into a cave and heard a pot breaking. He was like, oh, something's in here. And then all the archaeologists came. And they compared it line by line. Same exact text over a thousand years old. And we could go through all the different stuff uh, about the, the, the historical reliability of the Bible. And I'm not here for that this morning. But I want you to know, especially young people who are going to hear in colleges and universities or even out on TV or whatever, that the Bible is full of errors and no way. It's got all these. No. People who haven't read it say that. But when you read it and you do the research, in fact, this book is is by far way more historically reliable than anything we have about Julius Caesar, about Homer and Iliad and the Odyssey. It, it, it demolishes. And I'm not here for that anymore. I, I, I should have made some time to show you all that, but I just started thinking about it. But we won't go there this morning, okay? But I just want you to know you can have confidence primarily because of what Jesus said. And then as we look at the evidence that we see out in the world, it stacks up to line up with the promise that God made. So how does he feel about the scriptures? It's not going to pass away. And then look what he says. Verse 19. Verse 19. We're moving ahead here. Moving ahead, Pastor. Verse 19. What is life like in the kingdom of heaven? Look what he says. Therefore, whoever relaxes or loosens or breaks, whoever relaxes, loosens or breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's not good, is it? But whoever does them, in other words, obeys them and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying exactly here. Kingdom citizens live their lives under the authority of Scripture. And if you take advantage of the word of God, if you compromise with the word of God, if you ignore the word of God, you don't have any part of the kingdom. Did you hear what I said? Okay. When we, we play loose and fast with the scripture and what it's clearly told us to do, Jesus is saying to us, you loosen up these commands? You say, oh, you don't have to worry about that. He's saying, man, you don't have a part in kingdom living. You may not be a citizen of the kingdom if you are playing loose and fast with the word of God and the commands that he's given us. And so don't do that because they are for our good. Amen. So the question is, do you live your life under the authority of Scripture? It's a weighty question, right? Or do we live our life under the authority of our own opinion? Do we live our life under the authority of our friends' opinions? Do we live our life under the authority of our political opinions? And do we allow these things to be our authority, or is this our first and primary authority? And for us to say, like folks used to say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, right? This is our authority. And then he says, look at verse 20, and he's about to blow them out of the water. Watch this. So we live our lives under the authority, and in verse 20 he says this, For I, notice the word there, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mind blown. Drop the mic. What did he just say? He just blew them away. Wait, what, how? 
Because there was no one more religious. There was no one more pious looking than a scribe or a Pharisee. They dressed up in all the fancy robes and had all the stuff. And they had Bible verses on their foreheads and phylacteries on their, on their wrists and, and, and little boxes with scriptures in them. Man, and they dressed and they walked around when they spoke. They spoke with the right language. Thus saith the Lord and thou's and these. And they acted so holy. And when they said things, they made themselves look so good and they made you look so guilty. Man, they were so religious following all the letter of the law. And Jesus says, hey, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds or is higher or surpasses their righteousness, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. And people are like, oh, my goodness. Those guys are perfect. Those guys do all this stuff. man. I can't dress like that. I can't talk. How am I going to do that? How is that possible? Right. So how does Jesus feel about righteousness and holiness? He is a man on fire and dead serious about it. He is dead serious about loving sinners and and all of us who are broken. And he is dead serious about not leaving us in that broken, filthy state. Amen. But calling us up out of our mess and saying, let me show you what you're really supposed to be like. Let me show you what you're really supposed to live like. And so it blew them away. But here's the thing. These guys had a way about them of fulfilling the exact letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. And so what Jesus is saying is that your righteousness must go deeper. It must surpass the Pharisees and and the scribes. Otherwise, you don't know what kingdom living is about. And so how is that possible? Well, point number two, you can write this down, is kingdom citizens allow the scripture to go deeper than the surface to change their heart. Kingdom citizens allow the scripture to go deeper than the surface to change their heart. Change comes from the inside out. I was going to title this message. It came from within. It came from within because our righteousness comes from within when our hearts have been changed, not when we play a religious charade or religious games. I heard Chuck Swindoll talk about when he was around a bunch of other preachers and they use this illustration talking about pigs. Many of you have heard, right? You can put lipstick on a pig. But it's still a pig. In fact, he took it further and he said, you can put lipstick on a pig. And he said, there were these farmer people, these young people, whatever. And they put lipstick on a pig and they put a bow on the pig and they put a, a, a sweater on the pig and they sprayed the pig with Chanel number five. And that pig still went right back to the pig pie and just rolled the lipstick and the sweater and the ribbon and the Chanel number five just all in the mud and just itched and scratched and loved it. Why? Because he's a pig. We've decorated the outside and haven't changed the inside. And this is what Jesus is saying. True righteousness. How do you exceed the righteousness? How do you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? The righteousness that God accepts for a kingdom citizen, it must go more than skin deep. It's got to go right into your heart. And that's where the change begins. And so what Jesus is going to do in the rest of Matthew 5 is give us some examples of that. But, but let me help illustrate it. I want you to do this. We don't always do this, but if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you. Uh, and, and Brother Stephen told you to grab the pew Bible. Flip over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 15. I just want to illustrate this because I love how Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 15. And he helps these Pharisees and these scribes understand what true righteousness is. Is that we live under the authority of Scripture, but that Scripture must go deeper 
than just the surface. It's got to go to our hearts. Matthew 15, did you find it? All right, some of us found it. It says this, I love this passage of Scripture. The Pharisees and the scribes, that's the same guys, right? They came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? Maybe you're familiar with this story before. They don't wash their hands, right? Your disciples, you're lax with the commands of God, Jesus. You're lax with the commands of God. Your disciples don't wash their hands. The, the, the Pharisees had a special way of washing ceremonially, and they would wash one hand and then the other, and then they would let it drip. The right way it wouldn't drip down to the elbows, had to drip off the wrist, and there was this whole ritual about that. And they said, your disciples, men, are not washing their hands. What kind of sinners are they? Look what Jesus is helping them see. Notice first, right, in that same verse, what command did Jesus break? It says, why do you not... Listen, or why do you break the tradition of who? The elders. See, there were these other writings outside the Bible that were called the tradition of the elders. And these guys wrote some other commands and some other things, but it wasn't the Bible. And there were these all these traditions that they were supposed to do. So Jesus is not breaking the word of God, amen, not breaking the commands of God. Notice his response to them. I love it. Verse 3. He answered them. And why do you break the commandment of who? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And now he's going to give them an example. For God commanded, now he's going to quote from the Bible, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must, be, must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother for the sake of your tradition. You have made void the word of God. Let's just pause right there for a second, right? What is, what is he talking about here? Um, the, these guys, would they were supposed to honor their parents, and they were supposed to help. There was no Social Security in those days. There was no retirement funds. And so it was upon the children to help support the parents. Y'all with me? And so I got aging parents, and I'm, I'm supposed to support them because they don't have financial means. They don't work anymore. And the Pharisees were so holy and spiritual, they said, oh, no, we don't have any money to help you, Mom and Dad. We have tithed it all to the Lord God Almighty because we are so spiritual. See what's happened here? And, and so they, they said, we, we have given it away. This is God's money. We surely can't help you. And they weren't talking about a tithe, and it goes into more of that, but for sake of simplicity, they, they were using that as an excuse to be able to say, hey, we can't help you out. Notice what Jesus said. He said, why do you violate, right? Why do you make void the word of what? I mean, you break the command of God. You break the command of God. It's about their tradition. They're, it's all about their tradition. What about the word of God, Jesus is saying to them? Tradition is all about how you look on the outside. Did you dress right? Did you say it the right way? Did you navigate this? Did you do this? Do you look good on the outside? Are you pleasing to the people around you? Jesus says, no, my people, kingdom citizens, it's not about how you look. It's about how you live. Are you with me? It's not about how you look. It's about how you live. Righteousness goes deep into the heart, and then it changes us from the inside out. By the way, this is why people 
void the word of God even today. You want to know why? Because perfume, lipstick, and a pink ribbon are cheaper than real heart change. It's easier to decorate my outside. It's easier to come into church, to buy a Bible, to sing some songs than it is to actually let the word of God impact me on a Monday or a Tuesday. It's easier to do that. So how do you live? Are you focusing on looking right or are you focused on living right? And then look what he says to them. Oh, my goodness. It gets juicy. It gets juicy. Look what he says. Verse seven. He's telling this to the religious leaders. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said now watch Jesus quote this from his heart. He's quoting from Isaiah. He says this people honors me, honors me with their lips, but their what? Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their worship is meaningless. Teaching as the doctrines and commandments of who? Of men. And then he goes on to say, and he called the people to him and he said, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Because the, the scribes and the Pharisees also had a, a particular diet, a way of eating. They had a way of washing. They had a way of eating. And Jesus says, no, it's about the heart. Verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know, watch this, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard that saying? <laughs> yeah. Look what Jesus says. I love his response. Do you know that they were offended? And, and then he says this. He answered, verse 13, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, if they weren't planted by my father and they were just doing a religious charade, it was good for them to get rooted up. He says, verse 14, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, what will happen? They will both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then it's expelled, right? It's basic biology. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? From the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart, watch now, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart come murder. Out of the heart come adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Man, I'm so grateful for that because I've eaten plenty of meals without unwashed hands, right? Whew. I mean, it's good to wash hands. It's good hygiene, okay? It doesn't ruin your standing with God, though. Amen? He's saying it's about the heart. No wonder they crucified him and they hated him because he exposed the heart. And he's saying true kingdom people, the word of God goes deeper than the surface and it must go to the heart. Now, that was a nice little detour, right? That was a detour back to Matthew 5.20. This is what he meant by saying your righteousness, right? Matthew 5.20, your righteousness must exceed that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. How does it exceed that? Because my righteousness is internal and external. It's beyond the eating and the washing and the outside pageantry. And it's about how God is changing me in my heart. And I'm becoming a person who is more honest. I'm becoming a person who is more pure, who is more right, who is more humble and patient and kind and generous. 
from the inside and out because it comes from within. And then what Jesus does in the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is he's going to give us six examples. I'm not going to go into them all today, but I just want to highlight them for you as you're looking at your Bible. He goes first to murder and anger, right? And he says, you have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder in verse 21. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, notice what he says. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. Again, he's going to the heart. Then he goes to adultery and lust in 27. You have heard, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, we got that. I haven't committed adultery. Verse 28. But Jesus says, I, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her where? In his or her heart. Then divorce and remarriage, he goes on. Then oaths and promises in verse 33, he goes on. And then retaliation, he has said an eye for an eye. And then he goes on to true love in verse 43. You have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what does a kingdom citizen look like? They are a person who live their lives under the authority of the word of God. And they let the authority of the word of God go deeper than the surface to impact our hearts. But now let's be real for a second, right? I hope you've been real for many seconds that I've been up here. When we think about even looking at these six areas, which we'll navigate the next couple weeks. In fact, some of you are like, oh, I just got your sermon scheduled for the next couple weeks. Yep, I'm not coming on this week. Okay, yep. Murder, anger, lust, adultery. I'll make sure I'll be on vacation. All right. I might switch the order. You don't know. I just won't come to church for the next seven weeks, Pastor. All right, you do that. I make house calls. Your spouse already called me. (laughs) Just playing. Let's plan. But now let's talk about this, right? Because all of us fail. All of us fail to meet the righteous requirements of God's law, right? How many of us have had an hour's worth of pure thoughts, an hour's worth uh, of clean language, an hour's worth of of good motives and, and, and a heart that is generous and not seeking our own self? but seeking to serve others, not for the gain we can get, but seeking just to serve. How many of us have done that? We have failed. It would be like Jesus saying, your righteousness, right? Uh, go, go back to, to, to the, uh, the last verse there, Regina, right? Your, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. It, it would be like saying this, my grandmother, my dad's mother, she was just here visiting. She's 90. And man, I feel like she's a godly woman. And she, she is a role model for me. And it would be like, man, unless your righteousness exceeds that of grandma, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. Maybe for you, you've got somebody else that you're thinking of, a Billy Graham or an aunt or an uncle or a parent. Somebody you're like, man, they are so righteous, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that. And you're thinking, I'll never be as good as grandma. I'll never be as good as Billy Graham. or I'll never be as good as, as such and such. But I must be in order to inherit eternal life. So how does that work? How can that be? Oh, the beauty of the gospel. That's the point of Christianity, folks, is that Jesus came. And remember what he said at the beginning? I did not come to abolish, but I came to fulfill the law. And on our behalf, he fulfills the law. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's a person who has traded their robes of, of filth, of selfishness, of arrogance, of pride, of greed, and for the robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that you freely take the gift he's offered you. You trade places. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and he gives every person who will ask his righteousness 
in your heart through the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you. It was Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of actually Billy Graham, who says this. Yet because Jesus on the cross, watch this now, was stripped naked, you and I can become clothed. Clothed in his righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own as we sung earlier. I'm dressed in righteousness, in his righteousness alone, right? Christ alone, my cornerstone. Listen, even the very best things we ever do are so permeated with the stench of our sins, right? And grandmas are in our selfishness that they are like filthy rags in God's sight, as Isaiah 64 tells us. But at the cross, Jesus gave his perfect, spotless robe of righteousness, and he took on our filthy garments of sin and exchange. And on judgment day, you and I will be dressed in his righteousness before God because he wore the filthy garments of our sin. We will be clothed because he was stripped naked on the cross and took our sin. Amen. And that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, we'd love to help you navigate that during this time of of response here in the next couple minutes. Because that's really what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are not perfect, but it means Christ has fulfilled our righteousness. He has met the standard and we cling to him and we We beg for him to continue to fill us with his righteousness, continue to show us what it's like to live his calling. And so let's bow our heads, our eyes closed. This is a time for prayer. This is a time for us to do business with God. And maybe you're here and you're not sure where you are in your relationship with Jesus. I have a question for you as you think about it, right? Are you ready to make that exchange? Are you ready to make the exchange of your sinful clothes for the robes of righteousness that only comes by Jesus. Are you tired of trying to be good? Are you tired of trying and failing and feeling like you're never good enough? Oh, you've come to the right place today because on the cross, Jesus was good enough. And he says, freely, I will give you all of my righteousness. If you had come to me, if you would surrender your life to me and live under the authority, my authority, That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you're here today and you don't have that relationship with God, he loves you. He receives you with open arms. He desires to forgive you. You have a responsibility. And maybe you would just want to have a little prayer right there in your seat with your eyes closed. And maybe you would say something to him like this. If if, if you desire a relationship with God, you desire to be a citizen of the kingdom, you would say something like this. You could just repeat this after me in the quietness of your heart. You would say something like, Dear Jesus. I admit that I have sinned. I admit that I have sinned. I know I have broken your commands. I know I've And I am sorry. Jesus, would you please give me your righteousness? I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose from the grave. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. I don't understand everything, but I give my life to you right now, Jesus. If you prayed that prayer along with me and that was your first time, I want you to mark it on your connection card. I want you to maybe even come acknowledge that to myself or some of the elders or deacons here this time. Because we'd love to help you take your next step. Because we're all growing together. That's what a family is. That's what a family does with the body of Christ. is for. We're growing together. We want to help you come alongside you. It's like we come alongside graduates to help them. 
We all need each other. The Bible says that those who are Christians are born into God's family. Let the family come around you and welcome you. So, Father, may you be glorified through us this week. May our words and our actions be done under the authority of your word. Maybe for you, you're here and you are a Christian, but you know you've blown it. You've not been living under the authority of God's word. Maybe you just take a few moments to repent during the song and to say, Jesus, I'm sorry, but I'm coming back home. I'm coming to you. Help me to live under your authority. Change my heart, God. Jesus, we love you. In Christ's name we pray.